Osiris. Hey guys, before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to tell you a little bit about one of the newest podcasts in the Osiris Podcast Network that we both have been obsessing about ever since it was released. It's Alternate Roots by Jesse Jarno. So this podcast is sort of similar to Beyond the Pond in that Jesse tends to feature artists that are big on improvisation, but these are certainly not conventional jam bands, sort of... um. Oh, you could say new style jam band, often indebted to the American folk tradition. Lots of stuff featured in the radio station, uh, WFMU, lots of live recordings. And what's interesting about it is that none of the bands and songs are featured on Spotify. And a lot of it is things that either come from Jesse's own collection or Jesse recorded himself or took off the radio. It's... um. If you enjoy Beyond the Pond, you will absolutely find something to enjoy with Alternate Roots, but he sort of minds jams in a different vein. Absolutely, and if you are familiar with the name Jesse Jarno, but you're not familiar with his writing, um, you probably are familiar with his article, his infamous article following the Vegas 2004 run, with uh, following which he was accused by Mike of breaking up the band. He's also written some really great books, including one about Yola Tango, and one about the psychedelic movement uh, from the 1960s onward called Heads. Uh, Really, really great curator of music that you just can't simply access via streaming services. We've both been listening to this podcast a ton since it was released, and we would highly recommend that you guys check out Alternate Roots as well. And with that, let's go Beyond the Pond. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 46 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands, usually non-jam bands. We love Fish. We are Fish fans. We are very much into Fish's current fall tour. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. All they listen to is Fish. They ignore every other musical artist out there, and they just, they're not winning at life when they do that. So that's why we started this podcast. Absolutely. And like David said, we are deep in the throes of fall tour, and it's been a really great fall tour so far. We're going to get into it a little bit here, but we've been really enjoying following fish through their uh, Albany and Hampton run here. Um, And in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about the Albany and Hampton shows. Um, We are recording this on the Monday following Hampton, right before the Nashville shows. Um, And we're going to talk about some of the hints that we seem to be hearing 
from the band about Halloween, and we are going to make our two Halloween album predictions here. Quite excited about this. Some of the themes that we are going to be exploring in this episode include late 70s studio perfection funk and synthesizers, dystopian guitar shredding, and our fish Halloween picks. On that note, let's get to the fish. An asteroid crashed and nothing burned. It made me wonder, do tigers sleep in lily patches? Rattles run for thunder. I got an ache in my left ear. I felt the twins, but I still could hear. It made me think I would not be burned. But rather give myself to science. I felt that I could help. In science, I felt that I could help. So we're sitting here Monday, October 22nd, just finished up couch touring a three night run at Hampton prior to that streaming over Mixler. Thanks so much to the talkative streamers out there. We love you all. We've heard all five nights of Fish's Fall Tour and we've got a couple of jams we want to talk about. And we've got two in particular that we want to talk about because, well, Dave and I both made our picks for Halloween before Fall Tour ever started. And both of these jams just completely solidified our biases. <laughs> the jams that we ended up picking were uh, The Tube from Night One of Albany. That's the second song. And The Golden Age from Night One of Hampton. The 23-minute pull your face out through your skull and shoot it into the galaxy space of the golden age from Hampton Coliseum. Yeah. And the tube was much more of a, uh, true funk groove, uh, that, that was extended in the middle section of the jam, but really you saw pages since push the jam into a new segment of music that was really fascinating, especially two songs into the entire tour. And, you know, the cool thing is now five shows into the tour at this point, we do hope that this trend has, uh, held up into Nashville. Um, we know that the kind of jams that we got out of tube here in uh, night one of the tour, they've become the norm. 1016 also featured an Everything's Right jam that was absolutely brilliant in the first set. 1017 had a Chalk Dust Torture that went 16 minutes. Uh, 1019 had a really great blaze on. 1020 had a Fuego in the gym that jammed really well. And 1021, Sunday night at Hampton. 20 plus minute simple jam in set one that just blew all of our fucking mind. Yeah, that was, uh, they've certainly jamming simple has kind of become the norm in 2017 and 2018. But in terms of how you jam it, that was as good as anything they did at the Baker's Dozen. I mean, that might have completely agree. I might have enjoyed that more than the Baker's Dozen simple, which is saying something. I would agree with that. I think I would even say that about the Chicago Simple that we covered. I think this was one of the best jams of the last five years. It was yeah. just – and I listened to it again this morning, and it just completely uh, took me in all over again. Yeah, the Chicago Simple was very fun and prog rocky, but it doesn't quite have the levels of unbridled joy that this one had. 
as for the golden age, as I had kind of hinted at before, this was just fish doing a masterpiece of uh, noise laden psychedelia. Yeah. <laughs> and that went from Trey doing long, atonal guitar bends to kind of like a psychedelic bluegrass, like they were going to go into Cumberland blues. And then they did like, you know, like the alien, alien mothership coming down from the heavens to pick you up and probe you type jam at the end of that. Yeah, that's one of my, I mean, I, I would say that and Simple are my two favorite jams of the year so far. And they're two polar opposites, but they really just show the value of fish pushing jams forward no matter what. I think in both of those jams, there was a time where the band could have easily given up, taken a step into a different song. They pushed through for like 30 seconds to a minute and we were all the better for it. So um, kind of stepping back and talking a little bit about the shows, the run that we've been on thus far, five shows in the tour. Uh, Dave, what were your thoughts about Albany Night One? Albany Night One was a very good tour opener. In fact, yeah, I think Albany Night One is representative of each of these five shows in that it's very, very good. Shy of great, but very, very good. It was um, the two which we're going to cover. That was excellent jam for the second song. I loved how in the first set they did theme and theme from the bottom and free back to back because both of those are big D yeah, majors. That was super unexpected and great. Those are just big D major jams. I mean, it's pretty easy to end theme than go right in the free because it's the same chord. Everything's right in the cities. That was. God, that's one of the highlights of the tour so far. That was just tight. Everything's right into a very seamless, blissful jam and just seamless segue in the cities. I mean, you're talking that could have easily been in the second set. In fact, it kind of reminded me a lot of um, the second set of July 12, 2013 from Jones Beach. They had a tweet. I had like a tweezer bliss jam in the cities. Very similar. Yeah, that everything is right. It, it it peaked very similar to the Camden and Austin versions, um, it, but in also a really unique way and just shows the continual diversity of that song. It's super impressive what the band is capable of doing with that song at this point in, in their career or at, at this point in its history. I think it's only been played like 15 times. Um, Ghost in a No Man's Land uh, was a really unique segment to open up set two. Didn't go too deep, but then... 20 years later when about as deep as 20 years later has ever gone really reminded me of the um, uh, midsection, the space section from Crossside and Painless at the jam filled night and the steam from 1230-2017 and um, this was our original jam to cover until Golden Age came along it's just kind of amazing that the band gave us two you know, 12-13 plus minute true ambient psych wall of sound jams Show life wasn't thrilled to hear it, but then it goes a very, very pretty type one jam out of it. It was nearly 10 minutes long. Yeah. And it was almost like they were doing like a pretty winter queen type tender. Sounded like if I could. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if I could, very much like an if I could jam. And that was unexpected and everyone in the Twitterverse was in on the unexpectedness saying holy shit this is, is this still a show of life I believe it is 
And then you get a Hood Encore, solidifying great show, um, really solid tour opener. I think everybody was really pleasantly surprised, you know. It, it was interesting earlier this summer when they came out at Tahoe, um, there was a lot of back and forth wavering about, was that a good show? There was a MoMA dance and a Ghost Jam in set one. There was a really good Soul Planet in set two, but like the band kind of sounded off. They didn't sound like they really could play their songs. Tahoe Night 2 was a really... Trey fucked with his guitar the whole night. Trey fucked with his guitar, basically the entire Tahoe run. Um, it was really cool to hear the band come out and play a show that you could have really inserted anywhere in summer tour and been happy with it, and then some. And to hear yes. that, that yes. be like kind of the level that they're already at. Um, it really reminded me of um, the, the start to both uh, fall 2013 as well as the start to summer 2015. You know, you hope that that's not the highest level that Fish is going to get at, but that's what you want for a tour. Of. Was fall 2013, was that, was that Maine? Right? Uh, no, that was the summer. Fall was, uh, they opened up at Hampton and they played that really solid, uh, or solid is a huge understatement, a really happy, bubbly, candy-filled Carini on night one. Oh, right, right, right. okay. Yeah, some, oh, that's right, summer was Maine. Okay, of course. Of course, of course. So for Albany Night 2, 16-minute chalk dust for the second song. Not too shabby. Not that too one holds shabby up. You know, it absolutely holds up. You know, it's it's funny, it makes me think. I remember thinking this when it was being played. I was I was driving home from work when I was streaming when I was streaming it. And um I was like, oh, they won't jam this, it'll just be like a type one chalk dust. And then it starts jamming, and I was like, seriously, you guys play a seven-minute chalk dust in the second set at Dick's? And you play a 16-minute chalk dust in the first set at like your second show of fall tour. Like, what the hell is going on? But I was very pleased to hear it. That's a sneaky good first set. I think uh, very solid, funky Wolfman's brother. The steam had totally more umpapa than it usually does. Solid bathtub gin. Other than, I mean, the ridiculous chalk dust torture. Not mind blowing, but very good. Definitely. That's first set you can put on the car and enjoy all the way through. 100%. 100%. Um, and it really showcases the importance of, I think, Albany Night 2 and Hampton Night 3 are kind of um, similar and very different in this sense that Albany Night 2 is a very safe, somewhat predictable set list, but you insert some jamming and suddenly it becomes a really good set list. Um, Hampton Night 3 is that, like, you know... Um, the blessing of you have no idea what song is coming next and then they play a song and you're like oh my god that was a perfect pick for right now so two very different set lists but um two shows that uh, i think hold up really well listening wise uh set two kicks off with a really solid set your soul free jam which I, I, you and i keep texting about it that that is really one of my favorite songs to come out of fish here over the last couple of years yeah it's a great song i think it sounds like susan tedeschi should be singing it it does, it does. I can't get that out of my head, but I, I but I still really like it. I mean, that song seems tailor-made for Tedeschi trucks with, like, the 17 people on stage and <laughs> crazy slide guitar solos, and then the guy picks up the saxophone, and then he, I don't know. You know. If I just imagine it. someone on stage playing a tambourine singing that song. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I still love it. I, I love the... The message of it's great. I think it's very fitting for our time. I think it's uh, got a really cool bluesy uh, 
you know, kind of swagger going on. And, you know, for a band that plays a song called 555 that should jam, Set Your Soul Free is about as close as we're going to get to that. Yes. So, yeah, it had a good jam. I think it kind of petered out maybe five minutes sooner than it should have. And I was actually listening to this in the back of a taxi coming home um, from, I had my homebrew club meeting that night. So second set was listening to the Mixler in the back of a car. And after um, the end of that jam, I absolutely heard the watery bass noises. At least I thought I heard to go into down with disease. I'm like, okay, down with disease that, you know, makes sense. Second night, second song is set to bring it on. And then out of nowhere, Trey dials up birds with a feather in the wrong key. And I thought, someone missed a cue. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Mike wanted to go one way and Trey wanted to go another way, but there was a little bit of a lack of communication on somebody's part there. And then they had a really screwy version of Birds that I think was in like the wrong key for the first two minutes. And then by the time they got to the jam, they put it back in the correct key. Yeah, I haven't listened to that Birds again and I haven't really wanted to, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Following that, we got a Mercury and a Light uh, reprise its August 31st performance. Uh, it closed out the second set of that show. This wasn't as powerful, but I am all for those two songs being paired next to each other. They're two of my favorite 3.0 songs. Um, and uh, probably two of my three favorite, actually, I would say. Um, uh, Mercury definitely got to, got to a darker place. I thought it was going to go into a second jam. Um, always hoping for that. I feel like Mercury is kind of like Golden Age 2.0 in that sense that sometime if Fish is still playing in like 2020, 2021, 2022, they're going to start taking Mercury into like 23, 24, 25 minute jams and it's going to be like the next level of Golden Age. Um, They just can't seem to break out of that final jam, which they do a lot with, just they're not like really shifting keys as much. Um, Light, I thought, was phenomenal. And when they came back into Light, it almost sounded like Trey thought they were playing Blaze On. It was pretty... Uh, I, I, I was listening to it and, like, singing to myself, like, Blaze On! And then I remember they were playing Light. Um, really, really good stuff there. And then the set became very standard. It's brought to you by the letter W. Wed. <laughs> Wedge. Waiting. Wilson. Then Slayer the Traffic Light. Yeah, it's kind of a... We're going to get into this here as we talk about the next uh, couple of shows, but um, this is kind of a weird trend that we're seeing here in fall 2018, and I think the only real negative we could talk about is the very standard fourth quarters that don't flow well together and don't really seem to cap off a big show properly. But um, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the shift to the mothership Hampton Coliseum. Mm. First uh, first show is at Hampton Coliseum since fall 2013. Um, and as I noted before the show started, this was the first time since 1998 that Fish played at Hampton Coliseum in the middle of a tour. Not opening a tour, not closing a tour, not as like a standalone special holiday run. It was just... Three shows at Hampton Coliseum. I thought that that was going to spell something really nice. And I think that we walked away from that weekend feeling pretty high. It was a pretty solid weekend. Yeah. We'll 
get to some of the flaws, but certainly... Of course. <laughs> opening uh, the first night with Strawberry Letter 23 is not one of these flaws. No. Great opener. No. No issues whatsoever with that. The blazon that followed was very hard, hard rocking, upbeat. Good version, little extended jam. Maybe they could have extended it a bit longer, but no issues. And then Mock Song. Third version ever. Watch, first since Magnum Ball, just crazy. If you're watching the webcast, I guess a friend of the band or somebody had the lyrics on the sheet and was showing like the lyrics and kind of dropping the lyrics. Page maybe an homage to like Bob Dylan in the Subterranean Homesick Blues video. <laughs> it's a good call. Don't know why they couldn't have used an iPad, but good visual gag. Yeah, I don't know why Mock Song has always been a, a quirky favorite of mine off of Round One. Um, I really like the, I really like the chorus, um, and I was thrilled to. I just love the sound of the chorus. Um, it's just like it's a pretty song in kind of like a dark and weirdly twisted mic type of way. Um, I was happy to hear it at Magnaball. But then uh, uh, Trey just shredded like crazy during Rogue. It was a very good Rogue jam and uh, gave his absolute all during Undermind, screaming out the lyrics at the end in a higher key. And then ended the first set with a really fantastic raging walk away. I mean feel like you walked off or you 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 kind of took a pause on the show on friday night and felt pretty good about where things were going it was somewhat of a standard first set but also a really high quality well played first set yeah i, I like the first set i didn't uh, have too many issues with this first set was this was this this night or the second night where they played meat was that night two yes yes that was during this show right i'm just wondering because remember during that rift in meat, for some reason, my web stream and many other web streams were just going completely haywire. Like, <laughs> I know Brad Serling is fond of saying it's probably your internet, it's not us. Sorry, Brad, this time it was definitely you. I still love you. Yeah, there were definitely issues with the webcast. Um, for the I didn't notice any tech issues really all summer. I was actually really pleasantly surprised, and um, I know that just scanning Twitter around the time the show started and into the first set of all three nights. Um, I was experiencing streaming issues and a lot of other people were. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's not us, dude. Um, anyway. Love your work. Don't get us wrong. Right, right, right. Um, so second set started out really promising, really gorgeous Bliss Jam and Karini. Some fantastic Trey and Paige interplay. It was cut off at the legs a little bit too early. Um, My wife says they, they play Karini too much. She watches the shows and she's not a huge fan. She watches the shows with me on the couch. She's like, ugh, this song again? I said, I hear you, but it's just the platform the cooler and better stuff. It's one of their jam vehicles. She says, yeah, but it's stupid. Golden Age, though. Third song of the set. Absolutely outstanding. In the spirit of the Space Jam in Jam Filled Night and 123017's Steam. This is probably the deepest and darkest the band has gone since 2.0. Complete with shipwreck quotes, which please bring that song back at least once. If you're going to play your pet cat and Martian monster until they're just like 
buried in the ground. Please bring back Shipwreck. I thought that was one of the most interesting musical moments of the entire chilling, thrilling set. Um, Jam kind of started out a little aimless. Paige was kind of mashing keys for the hell of it, and they somehow figured it out, and they figured it out in a really, really unique way. And this golden age, Trey's really singing it. Yeah. He's adding, like, whoa, whoa, whoa's and really trying to sing in tune and do all the lyrics and just enunciate. I mean, maybe, like, the last golden age they played before this was Night Three of Dicks. That was kind of the slowed-down, funky version. Correct. And he's, like, kind of rapping, mumbling the lyrics. Like, it wasn't the greatest lyrical display. It was almost as if he went back and watched it and said, oh, shit, I got to step it up. <laughs> I got to give an applause to Fish, though. Everybody was so worried that uh, the Golden Age at Dick's, the pace of it, was the new pace of Golden Age. And I'm glad that Fish proved them that that was just a one-time thing that was coming out of Tweezer at that pace. Yes. I'm not bitter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Following up with a really groovy twist in the Mountains of the Mist, um, really fantastic thematic segment of the show and then meat stick why 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 meat stick here I, I don't understand why meat stick has any role right here this isn't difficult just start split open a melt one song early and play it longer or do that and then do a two song encore because meat stick is just it's just a momentum killer like no other. Um, Thought Friday was a good show. I think it was probably the most complete show of the run, uh, maybe of the tour. And uh, definitely, I mean, any show where you have a golden age like that, you should walk out being like, okay, my life changed a little bit for uh, forever last night. Um, night two, Saturday night, Hampton, five-year anniversary of 10 2013, one of the best shows of that year and one of the best set twos of 3.0. If you haven't listened, go back and do so immediately. Slow Llama opener, Fuego in the second slot, which had a cool little jam. Runaway Jim went out there for a bit for a, a set one version. I mean, people were feeling really good about 30 minutes into this show. Yeah, it was, um, what else did we say? 46 Days, fantastic. 46 Days. Bug, Mound, Tila, even. God, Tila, you know. And then they play Fluffhead in the first set, which I love it in the first set. I mean, that's something they did more in Fish 1.0, not so much recently. My first ever show, uh, June 28, 1995, had a first set Fluffhead. So, yeah, uh, continuing the trend, very solid first set of these shows. I actually... Yeah, very good first set. No, I was going to say, I was actually... Um, I had tickets to see uh, the band Restorations with Wild Pink opening that evening. It was an early show at Rough Trade in Brooklyn. Both of those bands are really good, so I missed the first set webcast. I kind of jumped on um, in the middle of what would be the tweezer in set two. Yeah, and the set two started out really strong. First tube, unexpected spot right there. First time since 2016, and I think the fourth time overall that it opened a second set. Uh, Tweezer peaked in a really amazing way. Um, probably the closest thing that we've gotten since the Alpharetta Soul Planet 
to this kind of thematic jamming that we heard a lot in early summer tour and Dave and I were quite fond of where they kind of peak a jam, bring it down to silence, build it back up based on a very specific theme and peak it again. And summer tour, we heard a lot of those. We talked about this a bit in our um, Pandora episode where we featured the um, Alpharetta Carini, that post-peak dissonant type of jamming. And uh, we didn't totally get that in Tweezer. I don't know if we needed it. I mean, the, the jam would have probably been 25 minutes at that point, which, you know, big deal right there. But uh, the, the the overall peak of that jam was pretty spectacular. In that case. So they followed up with Tweezer with Dirt Number Line. Great cooldown and pickup. Really loved that. Um, no Man in No Man's Land, the first repeat of the tour at the time. Really great spacey jam. And then they went to Cavern. And it kind of, you get Cavern, you feel like it's going to close the show even though they'd only been on for about 50 minutes plus. Then they decided to throw in Jabu, Okipa, Susie. I mean, fun set closer. But this fourth quarter, kind of like other fourth quarters, it's just like, let's throw something against the wall, see what sticks. Not bad. I mean, I'm not, don't have much bad to say about Gata Jabu and Okipa, Susie in the abstract, but, you know, nothing special. Yeah, I mean... It's like moments like that where you feel like they are either just kind of like pulling songs out of a hat from their setlist page or kind of run out of ideas or may not have as like ready of a grasp on the theme of the set as you would want them to. You know, there are those sets that you see fish where you're just like every single song was perfect. No minute felt wasted. No song fell out of place and you can just press play and it doesn't matter what songs they are. You just play through. And I felt like Saturday night you know, Friday night had that feel aside from Meat Sick. Saturday night had that feel through Cavern. And it's just kind of, um, I don't know. It's I'm totally fine with them like experimenting and being like, oh, maybe we'll throw Jabu in here and it works. But it was kind of, it's the second time now in five shows that Jabu's come up after a big jam segment. And every time it starts, it's always kind of like, huh? Um can't totally fault them for it you know they're having fun up on stage but again i think we both agree that we would uh, have wanted maybe a yem closer there something to like cap off the set and really make it feel good yeah i certainly agree with that which brings us to hampton night three sunday night never miss a sunday show as they say i think that we would both agree you know we had two higher quality good Good, good to great shows leading us up to here. All signs pointing to a great show here. Um, you look at the three night runs of the tours or of the year so far. I think that this was better going into Sunday than the Gorge was. I think it was better going into Sunday than even Dix was. Um, I don't think it was better going into Sunday than Alpharetta. That still seems to be the cream of the crop three night run of the of the year. Um, just in terms of overall song flow, song selection, energy, jamming. So this show opened up with uh, Stealing Time, okay, and then featured the first Skin It Back in 113 shows, the first since August 11th, 2015 at The Man, which the fact that that was 113 shows ago is mind-blowing in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, but only the fourth since 1988. Uh, really, really wild to see this song show up in the show, show. And Mike knows all the words. 
He like he somehow knows him. He doesn't miss a single word. He must be a really big fan of that song. Because when you don't play a Trey song for like 113 shows, Trey doesn't know the words. Mike knows all the fucking <laughs> words to skin it back. You got to wonder if it's um kind of like Paige always asking them to play Sleepy Monkey. If before they go on stage, Mike's like, can we play Skin It Back today? And Trey's just like, nope. <laughs> and finally tonight, was bro. like, all right, fine. We'll do it tonight. <laughs> Mike's, Mike's just like ready. Um, so the set went along. It was quite a good first set. And then, um, holy crap. 20 minutes simple. Smack in the middle of the set. It began with a jam segment that really hinted at the synth-heavy funk of the tube that we're focusing on here in that show. Before moving into just a spectacular, riveting, heroic, joyful jam that I argued today on Twitter and was called out by a couple of people, but no other than yours truly, Dave Goldstein. Yes. Um, Yes. I said, and I stand by this, this is the most joyful jam that Fish has played since the Reading Down with Disease that we featured in episode eight. Yeah. And in terms of joy, I would say, I think the golden age from October uh, 28, 2016 has got more joyfulness going on. The uh, Chalk Distorger from Double Chalk at Night, I put up there. Even the, the most recent, one of the more recent Soul Plants with Forum which kind of was almost um, sounded related to the Reading Down disease. This simple unquestionably got joyous. I mean, in terms of where it ranks in simples, I mean, I've got Dick's 2014 simple, uh, The Last Night of Baker's Dozen, November 18, 1996, Northerly Island 17. Maybe those are the only ones that are uh, could be better. I guess you want to throw Penn State 97 in there as well. But yeah, this is uh I'd throw uh I'd throw Burgettstown ninety nine in there as well that went into a mile. Oh, okay, yeah, Burgettstown ninety nine, Vegas ninety six, but you know, even by just us like talking about the upper 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 echelon of, of simples. I mean they weren't they weren't fucking around here. No, they weren't, and I totally hear you on all those statements, and I just listened to the Baker's Dozen chalked us the other day, and you're right, there's a fucking ton of joy in that jam. This just, I have this like image pressed to my mind from watching this on webcast last night. When they hit that final peak, there's this like white light and every hand is in the air. And I just got like chills running up and down. And it was everything I've always thought that the Reading DWD looked like. I was just, it, I loved it. I think it uh, was just a complete moment of connectivity for the band that uh, I will never forget witnessing live to a certain degree. And even beyond that, you've got a camel walk that got jammy. I got some really nice mic driven down and dirty funk. And then saw it again to close out the set, which is sort of like a screamy Halloween type madness, which I thought, you know, was good. It's Sunday night. They're going to let their hair down. They're going to play saw it again. They're going to scream it. The only thing I will say about Saw It Again is if you're going to play it, please play it with the proper intro of Fishman on the drums and then the rest of the band comes in. 
None of this Trey playing the chords and Fishman silently, like slowly comes in. That song was meant to be. Okay. Fishman starts it out with his kick. I love the drum riff in Saw It Again. And then Trey comes in with that big chord along with Mike and Paige. Um, I just wish that they would, if they're going to play that song and they've been playing it more regularly, just please, please, please play it the way it's meant to be played. Okay. I buy that. But, I mean, definitely of the five shows, this was the best first set. I mean, one of the best yes. first sets of 2018. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And for set two, kicks off with the 15-minute waves that kind of sounded stolen from um, the Victor disc. They did a lot of cool things. I mean, waves is an A major. They go from A major, they kind of flirt with A minor, back to A major, and then ultimately they get down and dirty in E minor. And it does a very smooth segue into Rise Come Together, which irrespective of how you feel about that song, I'm kind of on the fence. The segue was butter smooth. Yeah, I'm on the fence with it. I think last night, just based on the segue and the performance of it following it, I liked that. I liked the performance a lot. I thought the chorus was really good. Um, It's not been one of my favorite songs, but I think it's also kind of one of the weirder new songs that's been hard for them to place. Although I think it fit well in the Baker's Dozen final set when they played it. Yeah, I'm not... I mean, I don't always look to Trey Anastasia for social commentary. I guess <laughs> with that song together with more kind of is, you know, it's Trey taking some game stabs, some kind of like collective uplift in our, our current time. And I guess I, you know, I can't trash talk that too much. A little bit corny, no. but when Trey goes that route, what isn't corny about it? And yet I'm um, still... I still find myself singing it as I walk down the street. So the joke's on me. Uh, Light. Uh, As I was typing up the outline to this, I was listening to the jam live. So um, it went into a very cool staccato funk breakdown, a very heroic hood-esque jam. It was similar to the Baker's Dozen Chalk Dust in that standpoint. And at this point, you're 35 minutes into the second set being like, holy shit, we got the show of the year potentially here. Yeah. I said to no one in particular on the couch, at this point, they'd have to try really hard to fuck this up. And then they kind of did. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the line, wingsuit, your pet cat, what's a use possum? Uh, just kind of a, mm. let's just throw this against the wall and see what happens. And then this, and then this, and none of it really clicks, none of it really fits, and it just looks weird and awkward and jankly on paper. And it sounds weird in your ears, and I probably will not be listening to this set in full ever again, even though um, Your Pet Cat was played quite well. Really great little jam there. And um, Possum was phenomenal. Middle section of that jam was excellent. Yeah, I was washing dishes during Possum, as one does during Possum when you're watching at home. (laughs) And I heard which was sounded like a quiet, psychedelic midsection. I actually had like... A plate in one hand, a dish towel in the other hand, and kind of peeking my head in the living room, saying, "What? What was that?" But this isn't hard. I mean, Fish—they have like 300 songs in their repertoire, and the line is maybe one out of like three of 300 songs that you just don't want anywhere near the second set, even the first set. So, to play the line, and then play another slow song with Wingsuit. And then just like go nowhere funk jam like your pet cat. I mean, it's just 
they could have just after the light played like a big mic groove or there's a hundred one things they could have done totally. I mean look when like the Grateful Dead come out of space you're gonna get like the other one then Morning Dew or you're gonna get like a Stella Blue playing reprise Sugar Magnolia I mean they knew what to do they had their fourth quarters down if it's a little predictable it's okay yeah I mean that's a that's a really good point I mean I would argue a lot of the dead, at least some of the standout shows, a lot of their fourth quarters are excellent. You get a great balance. You get like the wheel, you get a reprise, you get a morning dew, closes out really well. You'll get a couple bar, bar, bar blues, rock songs that close things out. But this just kind of felt like they had it all in their hands and they kind of let it slip away. And, you know, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, what, what do you make of the poor fourth quarter showing aside from, the tour opener. Do you think that this is like a, you think that they're, and my, my wonder is, are they just putting too much effort into the first set, which to be honest is probably an okay thing. I and mean, we don't want to <laughs> start out slow only to peak later. Cause then first sets are unlistenable. I just think they're playing too many songs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I that's probably true. I mean, they could have a fourth quarter. They can play two excellent songs, and the amount of time it takes them to play four crappier ones. Like I don't, I don't think Fish could use set lists. I mean, one of the things I love about them is that they don't use set lists. They kind of do it upon Trey's whim, and he's kind of incredible in the fact that they can go three shows without repeating songs. And you wonder how he can put that all into his brain. And I think for jam bands, using set lists in a way is a bit of a cheater. But at the same time, I'd like to be guaranteed not to hear the light and wingsuit back-to-back in the second set. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think my, my theory is just that they're putting effort into the first set in ways that they haven't in a long time. Like, when we've gotten first set jams, it's been until the last two years, and even in the last two years, there's been a lot of shows without first set jams. Um, when that's happened the bands usually peak to the show towards the back half of the show. And that's kind of the predictable way that we hear shows now. And I wonder in a sense if they're saying, Hey, we're going to play jams kind of scattered throughout the show. You're not going to be able to predict them. It takes away a little bit of the overall flow of the show while creating really cool moments like Chalk Dust Torture jamming the second song of the show, simple jamming for 21 minutes, two legitimate jams in the first set of the first tour the first set of the first show of the tour. I mean, it's a give and take. It's never flow. I understand that entirely. And yet at the same time, you know, I like coffee flavored coffee and beer flavored beer. And <laughs> I'm a meat and potatoes guy who just wants some jam and rock and roll in my fourth quarters without having to worry about hearing the line and wingsuit act. Right. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. But one can hope that uh, by the time, at the least, that they get to Vegas, they've got that ironed out. And we've got, you know, the last time they played Vegas, we had three very, very good, very complete shows. And the hope is that we get that again here um, uh, uh, in 2018. Um, But uh, anything else to say about the first five shows that run, or should we listen to the tube? Well, I mean, we did kind of leave out the fact that there was a double encore Hampton 3. Oh, yes, of course. Which, the first encore was more, 
which led me to say, oh great, you played more in Rise in the same show? Good for you guys. (laughs) And the line, right. There really should be something more than this. And there was. Yam, second encore. And it was good, too. It was a good version. Yeah, it was solid. It was great. Um, You know, they either paid for more time or they were conscious of going off stage with a little bit extra in the bank. Um, I was very surprised about it. I was very happy about it. Texting friends and, you know, seeing Twitter light up with, uh, you know, it's just a totally unexpected, unpredictable um, thing when they do stuff like that. So definitely happy with that. Thought that ended the show in a good way, but... Um, definitely think the fourth quarter of Hampton Night 3 could have been ironed out a little bit more. Absolutely. Let's listen to, um, just so we don't get so far gone, let's listen to some of these jam segments that we featured.
right. Hope you guys enjoyed Nasty Funk in the second song of the entire tour from Tube. So we're breaking this show up into two parts. I've got one jam, one album. Dave's got one jam, one album. These are our Halloween picks. So my pick is that the band is going to play Daft Punk's 2013 record, Random Access Memories. I'm going to play a couple songs from this. We're going to listen to Give Life Back to Music, Giorgio by Marauder, and Contact, the album's closer. So this was the fourth album from the French electronic duo and their first since Human After All from 2005. Unlike their previous works, here they recruited session musicians to play in some of the finest studios in the world to craft a true tribute to late 70s, early 80s dance records. Recorded in Henson Recording Studios, Conway Recording Studios, and Capitol Studios, all in LA, Electric Lady Studios in New York, and Gang Recording Studios in Paris. Music and the instrumentation were recorded in the first four US-based studios, while most of the vocals were recorded in Gang Recording Studios in Paris. On this record, the only electronic instrumentation they allowed were drum machines, synthesizers, and vocoders. Giorgio Moroto, Panda Bear, Julian Casablancas, Pharaoh Williams, and now Rogers, among others, all guested on this record, and collectively the album won five Grammys. So this was a hell of a work in progress. Work on the record began in 2008, shortly after the band concluded their monumental 2007 world tour, the Pyramid Tour. The duo, satisfied with the songwriting that they were coming up with in early 2008, were upset by the production value of the record as they were very reliant on samples rather than authentic instrumentation. Around the time that they released the Tron soundtrack, they began uh, recording with live musicians and decided that that was the way forward. This, however, added the overall cost of the record, and it's assumed the band spent around a million dollars just to record it. The band, however, financed the record themselves, which allowed them the luxury to record wherever, whenever, and with whoever they wanted at their own pace, something that tends to result in either a horrible, indulgent record or something like this that I think was a really good mix between total creativity and uh, honed-in focus. following the release of record the duo noted that they could have just as well recorded the record without any computer technology as their sessions and production were so high quality thematically the album focuses on the idea of technology and its impact on our memories specifically thinking the brain is a hard drive the group also felt that while technology allows for infinite storage and possibilities modern musicians who relied too heavily on it were diminished Thus, the record was inspired by era-specific releases from Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, The Doobie Brothers, Michael Jackson, Steely Dan, The Cars, and Pink Floyd, specifically Dark Side of the Moon. At one point, the record was a single connected track. At another, the band had so much material that they debated releasing it as a four-disc box set. They finally released it in May 2013 to near-unanimous praise. In some ways, it felt like a reinvention. In other ways... A proper next step. In others, it felt like the band had found the perfect space to review the era of music that most inspired them. So, why should Fish cover this? 
Well, for one, Page has clearly spent time, energy, and money over the last few years to increase his keyboard game, get a truly authentic sound that's nearly unprecedented in live touring music today. In addition, his focus on synths throughout exploratory jams has added a regality and elegance to the band's jamming that has really pushed their sound forward since early 2017. Additionally, Fish has so regularly covered records and songs from the exact era that Daft Punk is pulling from here. This would not only be their first record, uh, excuse me, this would not only be the first newish record for them to cover, but one that touches upon the era of music that they themselves are so directly inspired by. Over the last few years, Fish has proven that they can jam with pre- precision and soulful ambience, stuff that they simply couldn't approach in early 3.0. And this record is a perfect, perfect landscape for them to uh, sonically jam. Finally, and this is kind of where the idea trickled to me, but tell me I'm wrong. Just look at the MSG New Year's Eve announcement font and tell me that's not a direct ripoff of Random Access Memories. So it is very much rip off Random Access Memories. Very much. I mean, it looks like it came right out of like 1978. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to go ahead and listen to three songs off of Random Access Memories. Give Life Back to Music, the record's opener, Giorgio by Maroder, and Contact, the album's closer. Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody calls me Giorgio. Thank you. 
right, guys. Hope that you enjoyed that uh, trio of songs from Daft Punk's Random Access Memories, my Halloween pick for 2018. So new album recommendations. We've been listening to a lot of new music over the last couple weeks. Fish Off Tour, us uh, getting settled into the last quarter of the year as we get ready to track out our top albums of 2018. So it's coming here soon. Um, but uh, new record that was released about a week and a half, two weeks ago as of recording. Sent it to Dave on Friday and both of us, I think, listened to it uh, three or four times. It was the first thing I put on when the uh, Hampton webcast ended. It's Coulter Walls. Same-sies. Yeah. <laughs> it's Coulter Walls, Songs of the Plain. Songs of the Plains, excuse me. This is an absolutely devastating sophomore release from a 23-year-old singer-songwriter from the Central Plains of Saskatchewan. It's one of the starkest, most authentic country records I've heard all year. It's a road record in the clearest sense. Following his touring from his 2017 debut, Wall wrote about the road, about the places he saw, the people he met, and the history behind it all. And it all comes out in this record in a way that just feels like an amalgamation of past and present North American travel. The album is backdropped by pedal steels, wispy harmonicas, and Wall's smooth baritone, and it's a gorgeous record that sounds like it's from another time. Part of the goal of this record, and I think successfully done, is to insert Canada squarely into the country narrative alongside America. And it's quite shocking, because for a country that's produced as Americana music as the band and Neil Young, it's kind of mind-blowing that this is still needed, but uh, such is life in the greatest superpower the world has ever known. The record was produced by Dave Cobb, who produced Jason Isbell's Southeastern and Sturgill Simpson's Metamodern Sounds and Country Music. And like those records, there's nuance in this album that comes across no matter how you listen. Through your iPhone speakers, through Sonos, Bluetooths, headphones, whatever it may be, you hear the little crackles and the little sonic whisperings that just take you to another place and reveal new things over and over. For example, during the song Night Hearing Song, Cobb had Wall set up a mic next to an actual campfire to go to sing. Um, this is just a brilliant record. It's a very personal record, but it's one that I think a lot of you can relate to, would love to listen to. Um, and it's just one of the most devastating and gorgeous and haunting and fascinating records that I've heard all year. Cannot recommend it enough. Coulter Wall, Songs of the Plains. I just can't believe he's 23. I like, know. He sounds he sounds like he's died five times. He's <laughs> mind blowing. Sound, he sounds like he had the hellhounds on his trail from age twelve. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's pretty incredible stuff and um it's uh it's definitely a record that connected with us, I think, both immediately and I've listened to it a couple times since and it still hits me hard. Yeah, his voice is a force of nature. That's a voice that's meant to sing spooky campfire country songs like you have the hounds on your trail with a voice like he's got. <laughs> if he was doing anything else in life, it would have been a waste. So speaking of something in a similar vein, I'm going to talk about the new phosphorescent album, Say La Vie. Matthew Hook, a.k.a. Phosphorescent, he's got a new record out, What's Not to Love. He's... um. 
He used to be a resident of Greenpoint here uh, in Brooklyn, New York City, in the five years since his last record, Muchacho, which I know I love and Brian, you love very, very much as well. Yes. uh, He moved to Nashville because that's really what all late 30s musicians who look like Matthew Hook do nowadays. He settled down, built a studio. I think he got married to a member of his touring band, and he has two children now. In other words, despite uh, what's going on in the greater universe, at least in Matthew Hook's universe, he seems pretty happy. And this manifests itself on his new album, which, while still sounding distinctly like a phosphorescent record, is far happier and more carefree uh, than his last album five years ago was. In particular, the song New Birth in New England would practically be a, a Paul Simon jam. Like there's one or two songs about the joys of fatherhood, but there's also an eight-minute Krautrock song. There's a song with auto-tune about celebrating Christmas in Australia. And there's um kind of like a few sad ballads, which kind of sound a lot of like Oh Mercy era Bob Dylan. But... Hook is basically doing what he does best, which is non-traditional tropes on heavily bearded singer-songwriter fare. He runs somewhat predictable things through a funhouse mirror, and he still kind of looks exactly uh, like the weed guy from HBO's High Maintenance, if you kind of just <laughs> individual. I plan on spending a lot more time on this record in the future, but... Uh, his voice is still charming and cracked. The arrangements, especially uh, those of his pedal steel guitars, are still fantastic. And you know, while five years is definitely a pretty long layoff between records, it seems to have been worth it. As um, yeah, C'est La Vie is a pretty quality document. And let's listen to some of the Golden Age jam from Night One at Hampton Coliseum. Thank you. 
rocky coast to encounter a dense fog. Are you too near the shore with its crashing surf and jagged rocks? All right, you heard some of the evil, dark, dystopian, golden age jam. Night one at Hampton Coliseum. So, on that note, the album that I picked for uh, Fish Halloween, I would love to hear them play it. I don't know if they are going to play it. This would be Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. And the songs we're going to play off that album are Only Shallow, I Only Said... An album closer soon. So, Loveless is kind of known as the peak shoegaze record of the early 90s. It's kind of when you think about shoegaze, you immediately think about My Bloody Valentine. It's the best record from that era. It's the most innovative record from that era. And it was also by far the most difficult to make. The history of making this album take up another three podcast episodes. I've already got a headache from looking at the Wikipedia page. I'm not going to spare you too much of the gory details, but this album took three years, 19 studios, about 250,000 pounds, as in money, as in British money, and one bankrupt label to create. It doesn't sound anything like a ride or a slow dive record, I mean, there are uh, like tender British vocals dialed back in the mix, which is extremely heady with feedback. But this album is just so much more. So the head Valentine, Kevin Shields, who's kind of known as the somewhat perfectionist slash anal retentive crazy genius of the band. Unlike most shoegaze bands of the day, he never used a flanger effect or chorus pedals. He just always wavers his tremolo bar while he plays, which has an effect of making the strings always go slightly in and out of tune. He refers to this as his glide technique. And when you hear songs in My Bloody Valentine records that kind of seem like they're shifting back and forth in your mind, they're sort of unsteady and sort of queasy, this is why. About half of the songs in Loveless are hooky Britpop jams, it just happened to be coded in walls of feedback and reverb. And the other half are colossal soundscapes that don't really care if you can find the hooks or not. And it sequenced as such to give you a pop song just when you think you might suffocate from the wall of noise. And frankly, I've been listening to this album for 20 years. I'm still not really positive what each song is called. I just know them by the one that goes... Or those are actually two of the songs we're going to play. But, I mean, song titles aren't important in this case. And I don't really think Fish is going to play this simply because it'd be a pretty big ask of both the band and the audience. I mean, to subject the average look to like 60, 65 minutes of a modulating feedback wall what nary anything that could be really considered catchy is tough. But the reason I keep coming back to it is that Trey reportedly loves it. I mean, there was a rumor it was going to be a Halloween show in the 90s. He actually played the first single and best-known song, Only Shallow, at the New York gig at Club Toast in May of 1997 that we love so goddamn much here at Beyond the Pond. 
And if all Fish fans really want to do is get their faces melted, I mean, this album will absolutely melt to the point of the entire audience getting third degree burns over every last part of their body. The light rig would be absolutely amazing. I mean, really, Fish would just need to be okay with doing like an immersive audience experience versus the classic rock radio nostalgia that usually comprises their Halloween shows. And frankly, I don't know if they're up to it. It's also worth noting that Kevin Shields kind of treats this album like a living organism. He's constantly releasing different remasters and remixes. There's been like a vinyl box set or two. And like he even talks about it like it's something like a pet that's like living and breathing and that he has to like feed and water and, you know, keep with his neighbors when he goes on vacation and stuff like that. Um, In My Bloody Valentine... I guess technically they broke up for the first time in 1997. Kevin Shields, he did a bunch of side projects. I know he worked with Primal Scream on uh, their 2000 album Exterminator. He uh, worked with Yola Tango a little bit. He did a remix of their great song Autumn Sweater. But I know they kind of got back together in the late 2000s for uh, some infrequent tours. And actually, they put out uh, what's officially their third full-length album in 2013, just called MBV. It's very, very good. It's, you know, as feedback-heavy and loud as could be expected. Maybe not quite as wild and woolly as Loveless. And there's supposed to be a fourth album that's rumored to be on the horizon. They recently did a summer tour. I could not go because I was on vacation. I'm told the decibel level was off the charts. And if Fish were to sack up and play this song on Halloween, play this album on Halloween, I think it would be thematically one of the coolest things that they could ever do. And I would just be, I would just be scared that some Fish fans would hate it. And then I would have to like pick all these fist fights with them on Twitter just to drill into their skull that no, you're wrong. This is really good. So. Do you think it would be a bigger Let's, ask? Do you think it'd be a bigger ask of the fan base than Wingsuit or Chilling Thrilling were? Hmm. Definitely, uh, yeah, I do. I mean, Wingsuit were fish songs. Chilling Thrilling was uh, funky fish instrumental compositions. Right. This is just a wall of gorgeous noise. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> this is, yeah. So now that I've built it up to that level, let's listen to three songs from My Bloody Valentine's Loveless. I'm 
Thank you so much for hanging with us here today. Episode 46, Halloween Hints. So, quick recap of the songs that we played here. So, in segment one, I talked about late 70s studio perfection, focusing on the funk and synthesizers. Uh, This was off of the Tube Jam from 10-16-2018 in Albany, New York. And I focused on Give Life Back to Music, Giorgio by Marauder, and Contact off of Random Access Memories. Uh, In segment two, dystopian guitar shredding. Dave talked about the Golden Age Jam and made his pick for Halloween. My Bloody Valentine's Loveless playing Only Shallow, I Only Said, and Soon. So, just a reminder of our social media links. We are on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond. On Simplecast, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Spotify, we have our Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist always being updated. At this point, it's way over 300 songs. I think the link to that can also be found in our Twitter bio. Check out the other fantastic podcasts on the Osiris Podcast Network at OsirisPod.com. And leave us an iTunes review because we read them and it helps give us, um, puts us more visual in terms of uh, the iTunes algorithm, whatever that may be. And we do read them and we enjoy them. And if you want to leave us a rating, we appreciate it highly. Absolutely. And you guys may be going, what the hell is going on? Why is Beyond the Pond posting on Thursday? Bear with us. we got a couple Thursday episodes coming up here to accommodate with Fall Tour. Uh, next Thursday, the day after Halloween, although I'm going to try to actually get this out earlier. So you may see this sooner than next Thursday. But as of right now, next Thursday, the day after Halloween, we'll cover Nashville and Chicago. And then one week after that, November 8th, we'll be covering the Vegas run. Uh, and then we'll have... Uh, some very special shows coming up shortly after that. Extremely special. So, next time you hear from us, we'll be covering the next leg of Fish's Fall Tour. Happy Fall Tour to all those who are listening and paying attention out there. You made it this far. Thank you very much for listening. Come back next time. We'll join hands. We'll sing Kumbaya. We'll go beyond the pond.